Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Trunk, and this is another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, new every Thursday, podcast1.com and iTunes. Thank you for downloading, streaming, subscribing, and checking it out however you do so. A little bit under the weather, coming off of a brutal flu. I'm on the back end of it, but it's still hanging in there, as you can probably hear in my voice. Even though I got the flu shot, I got the flu, and I got it pretty bad. Had a little bit of everything, and uh, well, actually had a lot of everything, not nothing good. So not the best way to kick off 2019, but uh, good to be here and up and running with you guys and here for another year of Eddie Trunk Podcast as this is the second of the new year. And I got a great interview for you this week. We're going to get to it quickly because my voice is shot and it's a pretty lengthy interview. Uh, But before we do, let me remind you that every interview you hear on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, originates on my SiriusXM show on Volume, Channel 106, which is heard live Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, with a replay every night, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern. And that is where these originate and happen live. And we welcome your involvement and engagement there and your phone calls and all that sort of stuff. Hopefully you join me on a daily basis for Trunk Nation. Also, quick note, just announced the first L.A. Invasion of 20. 19 and that's going to be happening january 17th at the rainbow bar and grill in los angeles if you're a listener of my volume show you know that i uh do one a month from the rainbow in la with a lot of great guests it's totally free to get into the next one will be january 17th free of charge 6 to 8 p.m pacific live from the patio live on the radio and my guests this time around are going to be geezer butler of black sabbath Matt Sorum, formerly of Guns N' Roses, singer Frankie Perez. They have a new band together called Deadland Society or Deadland Ritual. And uh, that is going to be awesome. A founding member of Black Sabbath on the set with us. Come on down January 17th, the Rainbow in L.A. for the next Trunk Nation L.A. invasion. Hope you join me for it. And more guests unannounced, but we'll be having some surprises drop by as well. Should be another blast. That's a hell. That's a week from today. If you're listening on post day and then from there, we got a lot of other stuff going on, including a bunch of broadcasts from L.A., the NAM show in Anaheim. It's all going down. Just check it out and uh, listen and be sure to follow on Twitter at Eddie Trunk, 
Instagram at Eddie Trunk. Facebook fan page, EddieTrunk.com is the website. So, again, I'm going to uh, cut the open here a little shorter than I normally would because uh, I'm having trouble with my voice coming off of being sick. I'll just tell you that this interview you're about to hear is with a very, very, very talented, in a lot of ways, unbelievably uh, overlooked contributor to Ozzy Osbourne's solo career, and that is Bob Daisley. Bob Daisley has been at the center of a lot of controversy with Ozzy and his management over publishing and royalties. Bob Daisley wrote the lyrics to every Ozzy song, pretty much from the first record through No More Tears. He also, well, I don't know if he wrote the lyrics to all that, but he definitely wrote the lyrics on the first two records and well beyond that as well. He played bass on every Ozzy solo recording from the first album through No More Tears, except for Ultimate Sin. And he is a huge contributor to Ozzy's history, and we talk a little bit about that in the interview you're about to hear. But the main interview, the main part of the reason that Bob Daisley called in was to talk about another guy who, in a lot of ways, tremendously overlooked in music history, especially in America, and that is late guitar, uh, the late guitarist Gary Moore, who played with Thin Lizzy, had his own solo career, which was quite successful, especially in England, had a couple other bands as well. Bob Daisley played with Gary Moore. Bob Daisley recently released a Gary Moore tribute album in memory of him, featuring a lot of great guitar players. So Daisley called in, and this interview was recorded. Bob lives in Australia. Bob called in to talk about the Gary Moore tribute that he did, and of course we got into some talk about Ozzy and other things as well. I think you're really going to enjoy uh, this conversation with Bob, and I hope you like it. I know you will. Not the first time I talked to him, but the first time we've spoken regarding the Gary Moore tribute and some other stuff he's working on. So going to get you that interview uh, coming up here in just a second. Bob Daisley on the phone from his home in Australia. Just to tell you how much Bob Daisley means to some people, Getty Lee just told me a few weeks ago, if you heard that interview which posted last week, Getty Lee mentioned Bob Daisley and said he flew to Australia just to meet and visit with Bob Daisley about his recently released bass book. Pretty amazing. So hear from him himself, Bob Daisley, on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. We'll get to it right after this. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Sixty seconds. That's exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? You can get an offer for your car with True Car. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a True Cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you'll get an accurate true cash offer from a local true car certified dealer. It's that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they'll check it out. And uh, you guys can look at over together. You can ask questions. You get the answers you need. So there's no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trading your car for a new ride. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. 
Eddie Trunk back with you on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. We take you now to Australia, where we are visited by Bob Daisley, my guest on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. Welcome, Bob. How are you? Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm well. And yourself, Eddie? Nice to talk to you again. You too. It's been a little bit. How long ago was it that your book came out? Two, three years? Well, no, it, it actually came out in 2013. So I'm not sure the last time that we spoke, it might have been a little after the um, the publishing of the book. It could have been 14 or 15, I'm not sure. But it was, you know, a few years back. Right, right. Well, that's a phenomenal book for people who haven't had a chance to read it about Bob's career and a lot of it about him writing and playing on the majority of the Ozzy Osbourne solo records. We can touch on that a little bit later, but I know that, sure. that one of the things you wanted to talk about, Bob, and a, a big project for you that's finally come out, is a Gary Moore tribute record, which is phenomenal. It's called More Blues for Gary by Bob Daisley and Friends. It's out now. And, you know, Bob, I was always a big fan of Gary's work and his guitar playing. And I'm sure here in America, he's looked at a little bit differently than other parts in the world, because quite frankly, and quite sadly, here in the U.S., he's just not that well known. And I thought it was really interesting in the liner notes on the CD you actually acknowledged that to some degree, that you felt that when Gary Moore passed away in, in 2011, there just wasn't enough done about it or made uh, about it, and you wanted to kind of correct that. Was that one of the driving things behind you making this tribute record? Oh, yeah, for sure, definitely, yeah. I, you know, I, I know that Gary became um, more well-known after the the Blues Project, the, the very first Blues album in 1990, and, and he continued that in in those days that that had been my idea for Gary to blue to do a blues album and it was my suggestion that at first he just kind of shrugged it off but then he got thinking seriously about it and by the time that he did it you know he was um he still considered it as a bit of a sort of side project but I, I remember saying to him Gary you watch this will be the biggest thing that you've ever done and that year, 1990, just going into 91, he phoned me New Year's Eve. And he said, wow, he said, you were right. He said, it sold three million and it's still selling. So that's what really helped to put him on the map um, more internationally because at that time we, we were still doing the uh, the sort of kind of Irish-flavored, Thin Lizzy-flavored rock stuff, you know, which was, was um, very successful in... Um, Scandinavia and and Europe and England, British Isles, you know. Um, but uh, even though we were recognised and acknowledged in America, and and we'd we'd done American tours, he wasn't as big a name in America as I thought that he maybe should have been, you know. So when he did pass away in 2011, there were. Um, you know, things said and done, and, and, and even Eric Clapton did a um, a live version of Still Got the Blues for You acoustically, which was a sort of tribute to Gary. But um, I just think in general there wasn't quite enough done and said. So after my book came out in 2013, which was two years after Gary had passed away, the, the following year, 2014, I, I, I did begin to think to myself, maybe... You know, there should have been more done and said, so I kind of took it upon myself to to at least get the ball rolling and, and start asking people and, you know, asking around, phoning around, so, you know, w would you be interested in, in doing a track? And the response was so encouraging that I thought, God, I have to do this, you know, as I was, I was asking various, but I, I wanted... 
the project to be very special because Gary was very special, you know. So it couldn't have been just any old Tom, Dick or Harry on there. It had to be like really special people. And everybody that I began to ask, the, the, the response was, I would be honored, which I thought, wow, this is great. And I knew then that I had to do it. Yeah, I mean, Gary Moore had a tremendous influence on a lot of guitar players and was a very, very celebrated player amongst the musician community. You're absolutely right. Here in the U.S., he really more came on people's radar with Still Got the Blues, which I think was the biggest song that he certainly had, at least in America. But you look at his career, yeah. Bob, it, it went in a lot of different directions, starting from the earliest years and Coliseum, Skid Row, and that sort of stuff. And then the yeah. the, the thing, as a, as a hard rock fan where he first connected with me was records like uh, Victims of the Future and Corridors of Power, and I was, like, floored by that stuff when I heard it. Yeah. And then Run for Cover, and then I certainly liked um, some of the blues stuff as well, but being a kid more into the, the heavier rock, I, I loved that side of what he was doing. Talk a little bit about how you first connected with him. I mean, you've played with so many people and so many musicians and been such a big part of so many artists' success stories. When did you first connect with Gary? Um, well, we sort of got to know each other through um, the Jet Records offices in London because Gary had a, a band called G-Force and they were signed to Jet Records. Now, Jet, Rock, Jet Records was Don Arden, which was um, Sharon Arden's father of Sharon Osbourne now. And I used to see Gary in, at the, um, in the offices there. And, and then at the time of recording uh, Victims of the Future, Gary asked me to play on a few tracks. Um, you know, he'd he'd seen stuff and heard stuff that I'd I'd done <clears throat> prior to that, and that was the first time I actually worked with Gary. Was on on Victims of the Future, just just a few tracks, um, and and then it was the the following year in '84 um, when he had to do a uh, well, it was a a live video in those days. It was VH, VHS tapes, and it was a, a thing that he was doing called Emerald Isles, and he did two shows in Dublin in. Ireland and two shows in Belfast in Ireland and he asked me to do those with him so I, I remember I had to learn 14 songs in like four or five days and and then be filmed playing them live so there was a bit of pressure on but I, you know I got through it and at, at the end of those four shows the last one in um, I think the last one was in Dublin um, Gary said to me well look you know I'm really pleased sounds great and Gary and I got on so well together as well so um he said to me, look, the, the door's always open if you're interested, sort of thing, you know. And, and I loved Gary as a player. He was a great musician, great guitarist, nice bloke. We had fun together, you know. So it was just the following year when, when Ozzy and I parted company for a while in 85, and I and I went and uh, joined Gary permanently then, was in the band. So um, that's when it all, you know, the the relationship really got going properly. Can you talk a little bit about him personally? I, I Unfortunately, I may have met him very briefly at one point on one of those uh, mid-80s or early-80s, uh, more late-80s runs through America, but I certainly did not know him at all. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what he was like as a person? Because, honestly, I've heard a lot of conflicting things. I heard that he could be a very sweet, wonderful guy, but it also, at times, he could be quite difficult. Well... <laughs> The difficult part was, I suppose, if um, if somebody wasn't um, uh, coming up to scratch or or doing what they were meant to do, or, or you know, first and 
foremost was the music. The music had to be right before you had fun, you know. So, but if the music was in place and everybody was, um, you know, performing well, acting professionally, and Gary was happy, then then it was a fun time. But Gary could be a bit of a taskmaster. You know, if, if it had to be, because, you know, it was his band, it was his name, and and he he knew what he wanted. So, you know, there, there were no two ways about that. Because I remember when, a bit later on, later in the 80s, and we had uh, Cozy Powell in the band for a little while, and um, I, I could see uh, trouble brewing. Well, not necessarily trouble, but, but just a clash of personalities. And I remember that uh, we'd, we'd done that album um, after the war and, and we were going to go on the road to promote it. And, and Gary got cozy in the band. And, and I, f- I phoned Gary at the end of that first week of rehearsals. We had a couple, I think, two, two and a half weeks of rehearsal to do before going on the road. And um, I remember phoning Gary on the Friday afternoon at the end of the first week. And I said, Gary, are you sure about cozy? I, you know, I have my doubts. Oh, excuse me, and and Gary said, "Oh no, it'll be all right. It's just, um, you know, we're just uh, getting through the initial um, period, and it'll be fine by next week and all that." But by the end of the second week, it was Gary that was phoning me, and he was saying, "Actually, I think you might be right." So mm. at the last minute, we had to get Chris Slade in, and um, <clears throat> he worked out fine and did the tour, and it was all good. But but yeah, there was you know there was there was a difference between. Um, Gary being happy with what was going on, and Gary being, you know, not so satisfied with with how it was going on, and he, he, he could be, you know, tough on people, and he could be a taskmaster. But if it was all running smoothly and he was happy musically, because the music was first and foremost, if that was in place, then it was a fun time, and I always had fun with Gary. I mean, I took it seriously. I did my homework. I did. You know, I knew how he wanted it to sound and, and, and how things had to be played, and I just did it, you know. So he and I always got on good together. He, he had a great sense of humor. I mean, he could be, he was very witty. He could be really funny, and he, went, he and I were always on the same page with humor. So um, we had a ball. I was, it was, I was, was just, always laughter and fun, always. Yeah, I was just recently with the with the guys in Deep Purple on tour through Mexico, and we were we were in a I was in a vehicle, and I think Roger Glover was in there, and Steve Morse was in there, and we were having a talk, and Gary's name came up, and one of the things that we were all talking about, and I I actually the one time I saw Gary Moore, I was working with another artist, and he was opening the show, and I was backstage, he was here in the states, and I remember uh, being floored at hearing his warm up. And the guys in purple were telling me, I guess they had had some experience with them as well. And they were saying that he, his warm up was absolutely incredible. And I remember seeing that myself, like, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of that as well. Like he was just, he would just stand in front of an amp and just let it fly. And his warm up was often uh, more, almost as impressive, if not more so than what he'd actually do on the stage when he got well, out I there. Agree. I think more so because and the reason I, that I say more so is because it was uninhibited and spontaneous, and he could just plug in and just just to you know test his uh, amp sound or the sound of the room or, or whatever it was, and he just let rip. Yeah. And he wasn't really um, playing anything that was rehearsed or whatever; it just came out of him. And and quite often that was <laughs> more entertaining than than what was sort of worked out and, and thought out, you know. 
And let me ask you this, so, Bob. Yeah, when it, when it was just, you know, off the cuff, spontaneous, it, oh, God, it could be blinding. Yeah, I remember hearing it down the hall, and I was like, what the hell is that? And I walked by, and the door was open. I just saw him standing in front of an amp and just ripping, and I was it was something I will never forget, having had a chance to, to witness. Gary Moore, and I want to talk about specifics on this record. And again, I'm talking yep. to Bob Daisley. The album is called More Blues for Gary. It's a great tribute to the late Gary Moore, done by Bob and uh, a bunch of musicians. I want to touch on some of the musicians that are a part of this with you. But one other thing right. about Gary Moore, on as far as an overview, for people that don't know his history all that well, as, as we mentioned, he had, he had Coliseum, he had a band called Skid Row, before the Skid Row that broke in America. Actually, the, the Skid Row from New Jersey had actually license and make a deal with Gary for the name because he had that name for a band previous. But he, of course... Yeah, that every- was his first Irish band. And uh, there's, there's Brush Shields, who was the singer of Skid Row. He's actually on a track. He did te- Texas Strut. And it turned out really well. But, but uh, you know, I, I wanted a lot of the the Gary Moore family tree and, and people from the history of, you know, Gary Moore's history. So... Um, yeah, that that's that's part of his history, the Skid Row thing in Ireland. I, I know he was a bit annoyed when there was an, a new band in the eighties called Skid Row in America, but but um, it sounds as though that was all sort of yeah. They I, I know those guys. They paid for the name. They they paid a fee and, right. and worked it all out. But the question I have is like you look at that, and then he he had the the Irish rock moment. Of course, he was in and out of Thin Lizzy a couple times. Yeah. Made some great had some great moments there, and then the hard rock stuff where he really went more in a metal direction with Victims of the Future and things like that. And then, of course, into the blues. And then some say towards the end of his life, he was starting to gravitate maybe a little bit back towards hard rock. My question to you is, having known him and having worked with him, what? where do you really think it was, you know, his bread was buttered? What was his sweet spot? What did he most like as a musician playing? What What phase of his career do you think? I, I would say um, blues-influenced stuff, but I would say his first introduction to blues music and that as a young kid when he was sort of 13, 14 in Ireland, I, I think was seeing Cream live and seeing Eric Clapton and, and uh, Jack Bruce and, and Ginger Baker. And that was, um, you know, it wasn't out-and-out blues, but it was an introduction to blues for young white kids. And I, and I was one of them at that time as well. It was like... You know, hearing uh, Cream and and um, and early Rolling Stones, you know, with the original lineup and the Yardbirds and and then Hendrix and then Zeppelin. It was all blues influenced, you know. So, I I think there was a soft spot in his heart for that sort of stuff. Um, but 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 the Irish thing, you know, he was he was a real sort of. Um, you know, he was a real Irish person with Irish blood and Irish ties and Irish roots, and and that was a big part of his heart and soul. And it, it's something that I, I used to refer to as Irish soul. You know, it's like uh, there's a certain thing in Irish uh, music and Irish musicians, and and that that, that it's sort of um, uh, exclusive to them. You know, and 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 Gary certainly was a good example of that. So. I would say the Irish-flavoured music, um, Irish-flavoured rock, you know, a la Thin Lizzy and and his own um, brand of the Irish thing was a big part of his heart and soul. 
um, and and certainly the the blues influence as well. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because it, within the confines of rock, he had a pretty eclectic. Uh, there was a pretty eclectic blend of things that he did, and um, oh, there was. I, I think he experimented in genres from time to time, and I maybe even was sort of searching for one direction because he did sort of. Um, switch about in in different directions and genres and that but uh you know i i i think that you know the blues stuff was was really from the heart and and certainly the um the irish flavored rock was really from the heart and i have a dvd of him doing all hendrix that was just yes. incredible he did a hendrix i don't know if it was a tour or a one-off but i have that it's it's absolutely phenomenal. He did a full Hendrix yeah, I've show. I've got that as well because there's not that many people that can say, "Okay, let's do some Hendrix songs," and and actually impress people with it. But but he he did um, you know great versions of those songs and they were played so well you know so yeah yeah. Bob is behind a great tribute record called More Blues for Gary, which is out right now featuring some tremendous players from, as Bob said earlier, the Gary Moore family tree or the family tree of influence for sure, and coming together to play, to play mostly stuff from Gary's blues catalog, although there's some other stuff on here. There's a Thin Lizzy track on here or two and, uh, and a good cross-section of Gary's uh, career. So, so, Bob, take me through this. When you... It, for people that know the influence Gary had on so many players that in some cases yeah. are better known than he, it, it's pretty wide-ranging. Yeah, right. when, when you put a record like this together, how do you begin the reach-out? Tell me how you went about doing this. Well, first of all, I, I started thinking about songs, you know, like which songs should be done. And, and I chose most of them from the blues catalog. Although I knew that there'd have to be a couple of classics on there that that are real sort of trademark songs of Gary, like "Empty Rooms" and "Parisian Walkways," and and "The Loner" was another one. Um, and um, don't believe a word. It, although it is a Thin Lizzy song, you know, we used to play that on stage live when I was with Gary. So because most of the catalogue um, supplied songs, you know, the blues catalogue, I thought, well, these songs that aren't you know, blues, strictly speaking, you wouldn't, they're not really uh, blues songs as such. I knew that I had to give them new arrangements so that they'd, um, you know, be in context with the whole thing. And and, that, and that's worked out really well. And then as I went through the songs, I, I began to think, mm, who would play this or who would sing this? And and it kind of fell into place, you know. It's, it's um, <coughs> excuse me, um, when I began to phone round, you know, I, I, I talked to Steve Morsk because I'd worked with him before, and I said, you fancy doing a track? And he was one of the people who said, I'd be honoured. And I thought, well, you know, there's Parisian walkways done. Um, done brilliantly, and, by and, the way. Um, I mean, the way Steve captures that is, you know, I, t I talked to Steve about that when I was with Purple a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and, yeah. And I said to Steve, and he's like, oh, you know, and I hadn't heard it yet at that point when I talked to him about it. And he's like, ah, wasn't quite sure if I nailed it or if I did the right thing or if it. <laughs> and then I heard it. And first of all, I'm thinking, well, you're Steve Morse, it's going to be fine. But then I heard yeah. it, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's brilliant. He just he captured it so brilliantly. But you know, he was skeptical about it when I spoke to him. Well, I, I suppose because, um, you know, when people sent in takes, I, and I asked everybody whether they were singing or playing or whatever to do more than one take so that we could uh, comp, 
you know, out of the diff- different takes, um, one track of a performance. And and I suppose that they, you know, they weren't always sure <laughs> on how it would turn out. Like, but, you know, with, there was a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of, um, you know, it was a labor of love because I wanted it as perfect as it could be. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of time went into that, that editing and, and putting it all together. But, um, you know, as, as each song came up, I thought, well, he'd be good on this or he'd be good on that. And one person was Jack Bruce. So we asked Jack Bruce, um, if he'd sing on a song, cause you know, I, there are several different keyboard players, several different drummers, several different singers, several different guitarists, one bass player, me, because it was my project, you know, so <clears throat> I, I'm doing all the arrangements and I'm, you know, playing bass on every track. And even though uh, Jack Bruce is known as a, a great bass player, and he was, um, and he was mates with Gary and they'd worked together. And, and so we asked Jack to sing on a song and he and he, he was all, all ready to do it. And then several several months later, he died and didn't get to do it. So... I was doubly sort of saddened by that because the loss of Jack Bruce to start with was bad enough, but the fact that he said he would sing on a song and then and then didn't manage it before he died was, uh, mm. you know, a double whammy for me as far as um, Jack leaving. But you know, all, all the people on there, there's you know, there's the Glenn Hughes. That, well, that one of one of my favourite Gary Moore songs is "Nothing's the Same Without You," and I thought. I need somebody that's got a sensitive voice that can sing this from, you know, the right perspective and that. And, uh, you know, again, there was a lot of editing and a lot of um, putting it all, comping and putting it all together from um, different takes and that. But it's, um, you know, it all turned out well. It was, uh, you know, it took three years to do the whole thing. There were some hiccups, you know, like where I injured my back and couldn't move for about six weeks and, Rob Grosser, who was uh, had the studio and who'd played drums on some tracks, he was the drummer with us with um, when I had the Hoochie Coochie Men with John Lord, and Rob's played on some tracks and he's a good studio engineer. So uh, and and he had to have a couple of operations at, at you know at some point and there were some hiccups and there were some people that said yes I'll do a track if you wait a few weeks or and then they didn't get back to us and they didn't do their track you know so. There was a few hiccups along the way, but um, you know, it, 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 the whole period from you know soup to nuts was um, three years, and that was uh, you know a labour of love. There's uh, let me run down some of the people on this. There's Steve Luke III, Danny Bose, who is the singer in the band Thunder, Neil Carter, who was in Gary's band uh, Road Empty Rooms and was uh, uh, just a, a member of another of my favorite bands, UFO, as well. Neil is on oh, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don Airy, who of course is currently in Deep Purple and, and played with uh, with Gary, Steve Morse, we mentioned uh, Glenn Hughes, who still sings like a bird after all these years. I just saw him yeah. doing Deep Purple material, and it was just stunning. Uh, Glenn is a friend, and what he's able to do at this point in his career is just remarkable as a singer and player as well. Jolyn Turner, an old friend from from Jersey, Doug Aldridge, Eric Singer, who of course is currently in Kiss. All of these people either fans or had some ties to Gary throughout his career. And the one guy I didn't mention, Bob, who I was most excited about when you told me, with all respect to these other brilliant musicians, is a guy that I am a huge fan of and who I've been on forever to just do something, and you managed to do it and get something out of them, and that's John Sykes. <laughs> and not only did you get John on this record, but really – Let's be honest, Still Got the Blues is the 
you know, the song a lot of people are going to immediately go to because it is one of the most well-known Gary Moore songs. So you gave yeah. John, a, you really gave John a hell of an assignment here. And my gosh, I mean, John's tone and vibrato, which of course was an influence. Gary was such an influence on him for that, but he yeah. just nails it so brilliantly. Talk a little bit about getting Sykes, uh, well, I'm sure he didn't have to leave his house, but getting him off the sofa to do this. <laughs> and I say this with all love. I love John to death, but I'm busting his chops constantly to, to go out well, there I, and do you know, something. I, I didn't realize that he'd been under a rock or, or hiding or, or hadn't done much for a long time because I didn't have my finger on the pulse of of John's career or, or you know work or anything. But it was only after that I'd asked him to do it and, and, and we... You know, the word was getting out that John was on the album. That, that people started saying, "Well, you know, it's nice to see him again." And and I wasn't really aware so much of, um, you know, his uh, having not done much. But but you see, when, when we toured um, America, it was 1987, I think, with with Gary. Um, certain people were saying, "Oh, Gary sounds a bit like John Sykes," well, but but it was the other way around. <laughs> right. John Sykes was a bigger name than Gary in America because of all the albums that he'd, you know, huge albums and that, you know. But John would admit that himself that Gary was a huge influence on him. So I knew that that John had to be on a track somewhere, and 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 when I thought of that track, I thought, "Yep, that's it. He's got to do that one." And 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 when I asked him, see, John and I had talked in the eighties and that when when we'd done shows together. I mean, it, it wasn't like a, a regular occurrence, but but there were times when we were on the same bill, and and I remember talking to uh, John, and he he was saying, "Oh yeah, we should do something together at some point," you know, and and I agreed. But it, it just didn't. We didn't get around to it, so it didn't happen back then. So I thought, well, here's a good opportunity. We can do something together now. So when I asked him, he said, "Okay," and and he and he he virtually went straight into the studio and and did it, and and you know sent us a couple of takes, and it was um, you know it just uh, flowed. It was just, yep, he's the right guy for this track, and it's worked out really well, and. There were a couple of possibilities for who would sing Still Got the Blues for You. Um, but I think Danny Bowes, at the end of it all, was, was the right choice. And, it's, and I've had so many good comments on, on you know, his, his rendition of this song. Um, you know, it, it, it just turned out right. And, and it's all turned out right. And as it began to take shape, as we went along, I thought, God, this is good. <laughs> I remember the last day when we went into, we did the mastering, when it was mixed and edited and all put together and we did the mastering. And I hadn't really sat down and, and listened to it objectively or just, you know, as someone who would um, just sit down and listen to an album. And I brought it home from the mastering studio and just put it on, sat back and listened. And it brought tears to my eyes. It really did because I thought, wow, this is a nice tribute to Gary. It's turned out so well. And I thought if I'd gone down the shop and bought a CD and brought it home, put this on, and I'd be thinking, this is money well spent because it's turned out great. And I was just so pleased. You know, obviously I'm pleased for myself because it's a really good product and it's and it's sort of a job satisfaction, if you like. Um, but, but more than anything, pleased for Gary because his name now is associated with a really good product. The, the reviews were outstanding. You know, I couldn't have wished for, for better reviews. And the social media comments have all been so supportive and, and everybody loves it. And that was just, uh, for me, brilliant. 
you mentioned that you thought about a few different people singing Still Got the Blues. Danny Bose from yeah. the band Thunder does on the record. Was there ever any dialogue or thought about John singing it? Because I actually like his voice a lot. Was there any consideration? I know John actually doesn't like singing himself very much, but was there any dialogue about that? No, that we didn't discuss that. And, and um, you know, I'd, I'd, wasn't, I'd seen John sing, and I, and I wasn't that familiar with... with um, you know his style of singing, or or what he could have done on that song, but mm. I just thought it would be nice to have a, you know, a separate singer on there. But actually, though, I did get a couple of comments from people about that, just saying, you know, oh, John would have done a good uh, version of this too, and I'm sure he would have. Um, but I'm certainly not unhappy with with how it's turned out with with Danny. No, no, certainly no. He does a phenomenal job. It really is one of the yeah. highlights of the record, as you, as you would think. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a bit different to how Gary did it. It's it's very similar, and you recognize the song straight away. But what I didn't want to do was recreate what Gary already did, or 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 compete in any way. Mm-hmm. It was just like, here's my hats off to you, Gary. Here's my versions of these songs and my arrangements. And, and, you know, this is my take on it. And there was no sort of like, oh, let's try to recreate what Gary did here. There's none of that. And and just in, in, in closing out talking about this record, for you personally, Bob, was there a highlight? I mean, all these people contributed greatly. I ran down just a partial list of some of the people on the record. But when you now that you've lived with this and you put so much time in it, is there a moment or two for you personally that are highlights? Um, well, I, you know, I, I, I love the idea of having Steve Lukather on there. He was, I mean, he's a really nice guy and, and he was another one that, that when I asked him, he said, I'd be honored. Well, Steve Lukather has just done so much with everybody. I, mean, I know him quite well. Know, and he's obviously he's got his amazing. own band Toto and they had major success, but he's played with, um, you know, he did all those huge Michael yep. Jackson albums and. And all, and so many sessions with so many big names, you know, Beatle, well, he's Ringo's guitarist as well on the road. Mm-hmm. For you know, and 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 to have him say I'd be honoured and and want to do it, I was just so pleased about that because that song, the blues just got sadder, was a song that I co-wrote with someone else um, several years back, and it was one that I kind of had in mind for Gary, and I thought, you know, this would be a good song for Gary. He should. He should hear this, but he he died before he got to hear it. So I thought I should include that song on the album as my personal tribute to Gary of, of you know, the blues just got sadder because we don't have Gary, you know. And Steve Lukather have played on that and um and Jolyn Turner sang it, you know, so and I have Gary's sons on, on a track and that that's another track that I I co wrote with someone else and it's called This One's For You. And and I thought, who better to do that song, This One's For You, than his son. So uh, Gus sang it, and Jack played guitar. And um, I've had a lot of good comments about that song. Some people pick it out as their favorite song on the album. So it's not a Gary Moore song, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal, my personal, you know, This One's For You, Gary. And from the from his sons, it's really nice for them to be on there saying, hey, Dad, you know, this one's for you. Are his sons active musicians in a band, or did they just contribute to this? Um, Jack plays, and, and, and I think there, were, there was... He, when I talked to Jack on the phone, he was saying that he had been doing stuff with um, 
uh, Danny Harrison, George Harrison's son. Mm. I think they're friends because um, George and, and Gary were, were mates. They, they didn't live far from each other in the same area, Henley. <clears throat> so, um, you know, Jack and, and Danny became friends and they were doing something together, but I don't know if it's developed into a band. I, I don't even know if, if Gus is a, a professional singer or is pursuing a, a singing career or what. But it, it just sort of it worked out, and it, and it it's worked well on this um, on this track. Yeah, and there's a great photo of you in the booklet, you and Gary, a really nice photo when you first open it, and then uh, some significance to the photo of the guitar pick in the packaging too, right? Yeah, that was a pick that I actually got from that one that Gary had used. I used to do that. Some I had a pick collection, and I and I used to use only. I used to only pick up um, plectrums that people had used, you know, so it was kind of um, part of my pick collection. And I, I sold a lot of it recently. I just, you know, um, sort, of, sort of auctioned it to, to um, people that are interested. You know, I had all sorts of, you know, there was Steve Morse and Steve Vai and, and, um, and Gary and, and all, all sorts of people, you know, I even had a Randy Rhodes pick, you know, so... <clears throat> I had quite a few, and and that particular one on on the um, on the album sleeve is um, yeah one of one that Gary actually used. So I thought that'd be good to put to put on there, one that he actually used. Mm. Last thing on the record, Bob, is there any artist that you approached that wanted to do this that couldn't? Maybe contractual or availability. Was there some people you came close with to get on here that just didn't work out that you had hoped for? Yeah, there were several. There was Paul Rogers. He, you know, he, he said, "Oh, yeah, I love Gary. I'll do a track." And I don't know if it was just circumstantial, or he got too busy, or or what happened. But there was a bit bit of toing and froing, of "Yeah, I will. No, I can't. Yes, I will. I want to. No, no, I can't do it." It was a bit like that, and he ended up not doing it. Um, and then there was Beth Hart, who said that she would do. Still got the blues for you. And then was um, for, apparently forbidden by her record company hmm. to um, release anything with anyone else because she had an album coming out. So that they kind of put the mockers on that. And, and one of the other ones was um, uh, Peter Green. Now, uh, Peter Green had been a huge influence on Gary. And Gary even did an album of all Peter Green songs called Blues for Greenie several years back you know and that's um that was that was a real tribute to peter green from gary so i thought if anybody deserves to be on this album it should be peter green but he didn't get around to doing the track either so um were you able to reach it, bob disappointing bob were you able to reach peter green because i mean every story that i hear about him is that he is kind you know he rejects royalties he's kind of a you know no, he's not really in the best of place you can't really reach him he, were you able to make contact with him do you know him yeah well i know his brother his brother used to um live just around the corner from me in sussex uh, in peacehaven i was in uh, telscombe cliffs which is um in, in just outside of brighton on the sussex coast and just just sort of about about, about a mile from me uh, mick green lived there and, and mick um, brought Peter around to my house one day. This is probably late '80s or early '90s. Um, so I, I, I phoned um, Mick in England, 
and he gave me the um, the contact numbers for Peter and my manager got in touch with with Peter's manager and that's a lady and and she was just saying look um you know Peter's a bit difficult to deal with mm. <laughs> and he has issues yeah <coughs> so that was a bit toing and froing but he ended up not doing a track which was disappointing but um you know it's it's nice to have Stan Webb on there um on on that that track Torn Inside because Torn Inside was on the Power of the Blues album the last blues album that I did with Gary and and that was um a bit of a tribute to Peter Green early Fleetwood Mac you know the blues Fleetwood Mac right um and so I thought well if Peter can't do that um, maybe Stan Webb will because Stan Webb had um Chicken Shack in in the uh, in the sixties, and I I joined Chicken Shack in nineteen seventy two in London, and and Stan was you know a, an authentic blues player like Peter Green, so um, you know it was, it was good to have old Stan on there because I mean he's he's part of my history as well, so um, that was a good. Thing. Another one was uh, Joe Bonamassa. He he said he would do a track, and oh yeah, I'll be in London in two months. We'll go into a studio, and that that didn't happen. Or okay, well maybe then, maybe now, maybe here, maybe there, but and and it ended up not happening. So yeah, the one guy, the one guy that I would have loved to have seen do something who I know personally and I know is a huge fan of Gary's is Kirk Hammett from Metallica. Did you think of yeah, uh, were you able he, to get he, anywhere he's there? Got that Peter Green guitar. Oh, does he? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that that well that that guitar Gary got from Peter Green. I think in about like 1972, the early days. And that was a 59 uh, Les Paul standard. Now that's, you know, one of the holy grails of of guitar collecting, you know, the the 59 Les Paul standard and um and and Gary uh, bought that off Peter Green for not very much money either, you know, in in the early 70s. Hmm. And Gary used it and used it and used it for many years. And um, and that's the guitar that Peter Green played in Fleetwood Mac with um, with all those big hits, you know, like Albatross and Oh Well and Green Manalishi and all that stuff. So yeah, Kirk's got that now. Wow. Hey, if I can, I think he I think he, I think he paid a you know <laughs> a little more serious shekels <laughs> yeah. for it. Though. Well, Metallica does quite well, so I'm sure he could afford it. I'm sure he didn't break his bank, hopefully. So. Uh, I'm yeah. going to put. I'm going to take a quick break, and then if you can give me just okay. a few more minutes, I'd love to come back and talk to you about a few other things, if that's okay. Sure. Gary sure. Moore's uh, tr- this tribute album that we've been talking to Bob Daisley about again. It's uh, Bob Daisley and Friends. More blues for Gary. All these tremendous players we're talking about. Most of them are on here: uh, John Sykes, Steve Lukather, Don Airy, Steve Morse, Glenn Hughes, Jolyn Turner, Doug Aldridge, Eric Singer. Uh, the list goes on and on. Check it out; it is available now, and it's a, a brilliant tribute. Uh, I'll be honest with you: a lot of tribute records come out, you kind of like, oh, yawn. You know, it's not. There's not a lot of yep, heart put yep. into it. It's not so special. This, this you can tell was coming from a place of of true love and uh, and 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 support for the music. And and I love the fact that hopefully this will help shine a little bit more of a light on the music Gary made because I do think it's criminally overlooked. So we will yeah. uh, we'll take a quick little break here. We'll come right back with a few more things besides this record with Bob Daisley right after this. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, if you like my show, you're not going to want to miss No Excuse with John Taffer on Podcast One. 
Shut it down and listen to John, the award-winning hospitality legend, as he brings you his straight talk and unapologetic approach to daily topics and current events. Get motivated to start the new year with interviews from Pawn Stars Rick Harrison, Jordan Harbinger, and Joe Coy. Check out No Excuses with John Taffer each week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcast. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And we're back. It's Eddie Trunk. A little more with Bob Daisley here. And for those that don't know, I referenced at the top of the interview, Bob wrote a book a few years ago called For Fact's Sake, chronicling a lot about his career, but a lot about his time with Ozzy Osbourne. An amazing statistic, which I think more people need to know about, is my guest here, Bob Daisley, wrote the lyrics and, and, and so much of Ozzy Osbourne's catalog, starting with that very first record, and also played, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Bob, but played bass on every Ozzy recording from the first album through No More Tears. Is that correct? No, there's one that I didn't play on that I wrote for, and that's The Ultimate Sin. Okay. So you wrote I, I, on that, wrote, but you did uh, not play on it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been in the band at the time, and, and Jakey Lee and I were putting all the music together and um then Ozzy Ozzy and I <laughs> had a bit of a fallout and and then he got back to me about it you know it was like all right I, we can't work together and all that big drama and I said okay well whatever and he came back to me about 6 weeks later and he said will you write all the lyrics for the album so I did that and but I didn't actually play on it mm. um, although I'd written a lot of the music be, before um our, our fallout, and so a lot of those songs are co-written by Jake and myself, and then I wrote the lyrics for them all, but that's the only one that I didn't play on. And I, to be honest with you, <laughs> I'm not that sorry that I didn't play on it, because that record I just didn't think was produced right. It was, um, oh, I don't know, I just it, it didn't have the right feel or the, or the right... Uh, sounds or, or whatever even Ozzy didn't like it he called it the, instead of the ultimate sin he called it the ultimate din <laughs> well it's interesting you say that because Ozzy has said in some interviews recently and I actually just talked to Jake about this that he if there's one record in his catalog he'd like to go back and remix it is the ultimate sin he he actually yeah. said that he, he still feels that yeah. way and that still yeah. obviously resonates with him Bob, you know, it's been well chronicled some of the uh, ins and outs you've had with the Osborne camp over credit and royalties and what have you. But very recently, they put out a press release saying that they reached some sort of revised agreement with you. Can you elaborate on that? I wasn't I was kind of surprised to see them put a press release out about it. And I wasn't exactly clear what that meant for you and how that all played out. Well, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not at liberty to discuss that. And there was a, a clause to that effect with the... Um, I mean, really, it was it's the publishing. The, 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 their publishing company, Blizzard Music in the UK, that I'm signed to for those songs on, on uh, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman. And, and there was a, a situation that comes up where, the, where it's the 35-year limit but that's in America, and it doesn't really apply to to UK contracts because that that's not the law um, for for that territory. So it was really a uh, speculative 
<clears throat> situation of, you know, is it an ongoing contract or, or what, you know, so, um, you know, we, we looked at it and that's just really a continuation now of, of, um, of that same situation. So a, apart from that, I can't really elaborate, but one thing that was in the press that um, has been proven wrong is the fact that, you know, it was mentioned that I had retired. <laughs> so, um, so with with this, um, you know, this tribute to Gary Moore album coming out with all these wonderful people on it and, and this that's being received so well, it sort of um, shoots that down in flames a little bit. Are you, after everything that's gone on, whether it be uh, royalties, I mean, people know f famously... And tragically, your tracks and uh, Lee Kerslake's tracks were removed from the first two records for a bit over a dispute. Uh, they've since, yeah. thankfully, been restored. W when yeah. you look back on the whole thing now, where where do you st are you comfortable with the way things sit for for you in terms of your deal and your arrangement on I those don't records? Think I've ever been comfortable, and I don't think I'll ever be comfortable. But you come to terms with things, and you just put your head down and get on with it. You know, it's it's uh, sometimes you. Uh, you know the old saying let it go <laughs> sometimes you just have to do that you know it's yeah i understand for you i mean a song as i'm sure you know a song like crazy train is yeah. an enormous song still in the u.s it's played at every sporting yeah. event you hear it constantly on classic rock radio that is yeah. that is this are you are you comfortable, like you wrote that song, uh, along with what, Randy? Did you and Randy write that? Well, uh, you know, I have to include Ozzy in that because it was his vocal melody, you know. How, how the songs were written was usually that Randy had a key riff and, and Randy and I would work up that key riff into a song and, and we'd do chord changes and I'd, and parts for him to solo over and and then sort of get a basic arrangement of the song, <clears throat> and Ozzy would sing just anything that came into his head over what we've done, what what we'd done, um, and I would have a cassette tape of that. So I would have Ozzy's uh, melodies and phrasing, uh, and I would write the lyrics to those to to fit what you know how he felt the melody should go and how his phrasing was. So it was really the three of us. When you wrote uh, the lyrics, when you you wrote the lyrics to Crazy Chain, Crazy Train, correct? Yeah. When you wrote the lyrics, what were you? What was that? What was going on at the time that you were writing about? What was it? Was it just a statement on what you were seeing going on in the world at that time? Yeah, it, it was. You know, I'd, uh, there was a certain element of wanting to write something that Ozzy would be comfortable singing as well, and I I knew what affected him um he was he was sort of um a, a little fearful of world war three breaking out and if there was ever any tension between the superpowers or things in the news or whatever he'd be shaking and and vibrating and and getting all sort of revved up you know so but but you know looking at, at what that song's about it is it's, it's a kind of way of saying isn't it silly how people live on this planet of being foes, enemies, when it's not really necessary, you know, and everybody's living in fear and threat and negativity when it's, when it's not necessary. The crazy train bit came from Randy plugged in this, this effects pedal, and it had a sort of psychedelic kind of sound, 
and I, and it had a sort of a, a, a pulse to it. It was like a chug. I, I said, it's like a train, but it's like because of the, the sort of psychedelic aspect of it. I said, it sounds like a crazy train. That's where that came from. But wow. Ozzy had a saying that he's that he used to use quite often, and he'd say, oh you're off the rails or I'm going off the rails or he's off the rails or whatever. So I thought going off the rails on a crazy train. And that's, that's how I came up with that line. Were, were there, you <laughs> were, the, um, you know, the, the, the general gist of the song is, is, um, you know, that, that see as kids, we grew up in the fifties and, and the fifties uh, and sixties, there was always the possible threat you know, or, or the or the or the definite threat <laughs> of the superpowers clashing. You know, and it was. Um, I, I remember being 12 years old, sitting in the car with my dad one Friday afternoon, and he was reading the paper. And this was in, I think, about October, November, 1962. And he said, "God," he said, "It looks like by Monday it could be World War Three." Now that's you know that was frightening for young kids, and and Aussie had gone through that too, and we all felt that that you know that. There was always the possibility of, of um, you know, bend over, put your head between your legs, and kiss your ass goodbye. You know? <laughs> Were there ever and, times and it was that that feeling that's in the song? You know, right, Bob. In all these lyrics that you wrote, and all these songs you yeah. wrote uh, for Ozzy, you were you were basically his voice. I mean, he would come up with the melodies, yeah. but what he was singing, the words he was singing, were words you wrote. So, in all yeah. these years, over all these records that you wrote these lyrics to, were there ever times where he would come back to you and say, I, "I can't sing this. I can't get my head around this," or was he pretty good about whatever you wrote on that page? He was like, "Yeah, okay, I I'll, I can I'll deliver these lines." Yeah, he was pretty good like that. You know, I'd, I'd go through it with him and say, well, you know, I've, I've written these, have a look. And occasionally he'd say, oh, this line doesn't sing so well or it's not easy to sing this part. And then I'd change a word or two or or that sort of thing. But I'd, I'd say about like, you know, 95% or, or, or more, it was all acceptable and it was all, yeah, all good. Zach Wilde told me a funny story once about uh, Ozzy not... I think it was Alistair Crowley, and he didn't know who that was. And Zach said, well, you sing a song called Mr. Crowley about him. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you, you remember well, it was you... that came up with that title, Mr. Crowley. Who did? And, 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 and I wrote the lyrics about the, um, you know, the black magician. Right. <clears throat> but I wanted it to have a kind of more of a positive slant or have a positive light on it rather than the negative darkness, doom and gloom thing, you know, so it was, um, you know, people were trying to interpret the, the different um, lines in the song of, you know, uh, won't you ride my white horse, it's symbolic, of course, you know, it's a, in my mind, the white horse was just strength and power and white and, and it was all sort of good, but people were saying, oh, white horse, is that heroin or a white horse, is that the, the pale horse from the, you know, the apocalypse and, and those sorts of things. But in my mind, the white horse was just strength, power and, and something positive. But I, I could see why people did interpret that in, in that way because of, um, you know, Heron was called Henry the horse. And <laughs> what were lyrics, something that always came easy. Behold the pale horse. There was a book called that about the apocalypse. 
Bob, were lyrics always something that came easy to you? Like when you're writing these songs and writing these lyrics, was that something, were you able to knock it out pretty quickly in the studio? Or was it something that you really had to get away from everybody and take some time and put pen to paper and really focus on? Or did they just kind of flow from you? Well, I, I, I did um, often have to just sit by myself and contemplate what I was writing and and let things surface in my mind and, and, and quite often, you know, some lines would come quite quickly and other times I'd spend hours or a couple of days on, on making sure they were right and and I'd go back and change things and that. But I, I think it was the necessity, or as the saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, it was the necessity of, of, of keeping the songwriting within the band where I took the role of writing the lyrics, because I remember when we we're, were just still putting together the material for that first album, and we were st- it was just Randy, Ozzy, and myself, and we were still auditioning drummers. We were looking for a drummer, and while we were looking for a drummer, we were writing the songs and that. And I remember uh, we were at a place called uh, Transam Trucking, which was a, a, a rehearsal place in, in a place called Ilkert Shawl. Uh, this is all in my book anyway, um, in Suffolk. And I came down one morning, and and Ozzy and Randy had been trying their hand at at writing lyrics, and they and they had I think one verse, I can't even remember what song it was, but I had a look at it, and I thought, God, oh, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was just corny spinal tap sort of, you know, drivel. And I thought, oh no, I'd better write the lyrics, and that's how it happened. That's how I started. I just put the lyric hat on. And wore it ever since, you know, because uh, Randy wasn't really a lyricist, and and Ozzy wasn't really a lyricist, and e- and even when uh, Lee Kerslake joined the band, he had written songs himself for, for other projects and that, but he even he said uh, he said, oh no, he said you do it, because I remember at one point at Ridge Farm when we'd already started recording the backing tracks and that, and some songs had no lyrics. Mm. And we're all, the four of us were sitting there and people were trying to make suggestions. I said, look, 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 okay, look, I'll just take this away. I'll sit in my room and I'll write the lyrics. And I did. And that's how it was done. Just one more thing. I won't keep you much longer. You know, you, no, that's all right. you, you had the unbelievable opportunity to see uh, and spend time and work with and record with Randy Rhodes before he really burst onto the scene with that first record in a big way. Yeah. What what were your as a bandmate and uh, you know fellow songwriter with him on on some of that early material? What were your recollections when you first met Randy? What were your impressions when you heard him play? And did you have any idea early on that he was going to make the mark that he made so quickly with such a, a brief career? Well, that's several questions, and I'll answer them all. Um, I first met Randy in Jet Records offices in um, the end of 1979. Now, Ozzy had already met Randy in L.A. Now, when Ozzy met Randy in L.A., he'd had a sort of workout with him for a couple of days with a a drummer and a bass player, and, and and he said to Randy, you've got the gig. But then Ozzy came back to England, and nothing happened for Randy. And that was it. And it looked like Ozzy was going to form a, a different band in England because he had another drummer and another guitarist. Well, I met Ozzy at the Music Machine in Camden Town in London. Um, it, it would have been like September, October 79, somewhere around there. So the dates are in my book because I kept diaries. 
Um, and then when Ozzy said, I'll come up to my place and, and we'll have a bit of a sort of knock together and see how it feels. And I went up to Ozzy's house in Stafford in the Midlands. <clears throat> and um, he had these two other guys there, this drummer and guitarist. And, and we had a play together. And they, they were nice guys and they were decent players. But I, I went out to the kitchen with Ozzy in his house and I said, well, look, you know, if you want to get serious about this, to be honest with you, I'd... They're nice guys. They play all right. I said, I don't think they're world-class, though. He said, hang on a minute. He walked away, and he went in. He said, all right, you can pack up, fellas, and go home. It's not working out. And that was the end of them. Do you know who they but were? The Bob, do you know who session, they... Ozzy and I agreed that we got on well together and that we could work together and, and make something of it. And that's when he told me. He said, look, I met this other guitarist in L.A., you know, a couple of months back. He said his name's Randy Rhodes, and he's a guitar teacher. Well, you know, we, we we sort of searched around in England and approached various guitarists about, you know, maybe joining me and Ozzy to, to form a band, but nobody seemed that interested. So it, it was kind of, as a last resort, Ozzy and I went to David Arden, who was Don Arden's son, and, and running the day-to-day -day stuff at Jet Records for Ozzy. And we said to David Arden, can we fly this this?" young lad that um, Ozzy's seen in L.A. over, fly him over here. And David Arden didn't really want to do it, and they wanted to keep the band as an you know, English-based band. But, you know, David Arden's, were, David Arden's words were, against my better judgment, I flew this young, unknown kid <laughs> over to London. And, and that's when I met um, Randy in the office with, with Ozzy. And the three of us went up... Um, back to Ozzy's house on a train and when we got to Ozzy's place um, we had a play together and Ozzy had a friend there just sort of keeping a beat on a drum kit, a guy called Spencer um, just so that we could have a knock together and and, um, and Randy was staying in a hotel in London <coughs> so the next day we, st we stayed at Ozzy's that night and the next day we went back to um, London together because I lived in London and Randy was staying in a hotel in London and as we were standing on the station in Stafford waiting for the train it was just me and Randy and I had this thing come into my head this this sort of feeling or a voice or a message or whatever and I said one day people will repeatedly ask you what was it like to play with Randy Rhodes mm. and that was sort of a premonition that I had and as it developed, and you know, I, I began to understand why that message had come into my head because he was such a great player, and he was he was breaking new ground and and blowing the doors off the world of guitar playing, you know. So um, you know, there there had been Eddie Van Halen, but you see, Van Halen as a band were, were more commercial; they were doing more radio friendly sort of pop rock stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but with us, Randy had a different influence and a different environment to be in to really develop his playing into more of a um, you know heavy heavy rock guitar player because Ozzy would come from Sabbath, I'd just come from Rainbow, and Lee Kerslake had come from um, <coughs> Uriah Heep. So that was a good environment for Randy to um, develop for that genre of music because he'd come from Quiet Riot and they were sort of glam rock, pop rock too. You know? right. so even though Randy was a great player, it, it didn't quite take off because it was just the wrong environment for him. I'm curious, last thing, do you remember who the two people were that were there no, before Randy? I, no, I don't know. It, it could have been two guys that, 
You see, Ozzy left Black Sabbath in, I think, 1978, the year before. Right. And um, and he had a band that was going to be called the Blizzard of Oz. And he had a couple of guys in that band. It could have been those two, I do, but I don't know. I, do, I don't remember. It was a bit of a haze because they were sort of quick in and out gone. I, I met them. We had a bit of a play, and then they were gone. And I think one of them had red hair. But, um, you know, the, uh, Ozzy might remember who, well, he should remember who they were because he organized them. So, but I think it could have been two of the guys that he, he tried to get a band off the ground a year before and it, and it didn't take off and he went back to Sabbath. But it was actually his dad, um, Ozzy's father, that came up with the name. He said, oh, if you have a band, you should call it the Blizzard of Oz. Mm. Well, see, at the time of forming the band, when when we got it together, um, Jet Records, uh, you know, they were all saying, oh, maybe you should just call it Ozzy Osbourne or just call the band Ozzy. And Randy and I said, no, you know, we're doing too much here. You know, we're we're writing all the stuff. We're an integral part of the the whole band and the and the direction of the music and the you know, we want a band name. So, um, you know, we understood and agreed that maybe the name Ozzy Osbourne should be in there somewhere. You know, so the Blizzard of Oz, at least it sounded like a band and, and it had the Oz in there, which was, um, you know, and, and we went to the record company. We said, look, we don't mind if you put a sticker on the front of the album saying featuring the voice of Black Sabbath or featuring Ozzy Osbourne or whatever. But, you know, there was a bit of a betrayal there when the album came out because of that in huge writing, Ozzy Osbourne, and in smaller writing, Blizzard of Oz, mm -hmm. which made it look like a Ozzy Osbourne solo record called The Blizzard of Oz. Right. But that wasn't the case. You know, the band was called The Blizzard of Oz. End of story. Do you have any interaction still with Ozzy? Have you, when was the last time you actually spoke to him? Oh, it's quite a few years back now, but, um, you know, I, I, I do feel a loss there because Ozzy and I got on so well together and, you know, and we created well together and um, we worked well together and, and we were mates and we always had a good laugh. He's got a great sense of humor. We're always on the same page humor wise. It's just a shame that, that, that all that business stuff had to get in the way and, and, and ruin that, um, you know, that nice situation. It's uh, pretty awful, really. It's a loss. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I wish him well. I just, um, it would be nice to talk to him. It'd be nice to sit down and have a, have a laugh with him, you know, because we used to laugh so much, and it was, um, it was always fun. And he was easy to work with. We, we all were. It was just, a, it was a nice, friendly, easygoing situation. Well, I think you're, and I, I always make sure that I call out and educate people to the enormous role that you played in his success and in those records and in those songs. And uh, it stands the test of time. People still talk about it, and, and obviously it's still played. It's still celebrated in a lot of ways. I know you've done a lot of other things in your career, played with a lot of other artists, but that's something that more and more people, in my view, need to know about your contributions to uh, to what are considered to be certainly classic records. Oh, well, I'm so pleased about that, too, that those two albums have become iconic you know it's 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 something it was one of my ambitions like when i was in my 20s i think it was probably around about the time of rainbow because in rainbow that was a big break for me to get into a band with cozy powell and ronnie dio and and richie blackmore and 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 be in an arenas band kind of thing it was great 
but it was still sort of you're still kind of like a side man a hired gun and and I began to think you know I would really like to get into and form a band from the ground floor and have some kind of success that that um you know becomes a part of rock history kind of thing you know whether it's a single or an album or whatever it is and uh, and that happened with the blizzard of oz and, and and that that was sort of like the realization of an ambition for me and it was uh, wonderful stuff well bob i greatly appreciate all the time here it's always wonderful to talk to you and i tell my audience again check out bob's latest project which is more blues for gary we talked about it earlier if you're just joining the conversation go back and grab the interview on demand listen to it from the top we spent a lot of time talking about this brand new record which is a tribute to the late great gary moore and that is available now and i'm sure it's still available if you want way more on bob's career and his time working with ozzy check out his uh, brilliant book called for fact's sake which you can still get the book bob is it still out there oh yeah sure yeah amazon's still got it still flying out the door it's it's been great, really, because if if you go into Amazon, whether it's UK, Canada, America, whatever, the reviews that people leave have been stunning. You know, it's like everybody loves this book, and they've been so supportive. And, you know, people don't have to spend the time on leaving a review that's going to help, you know, other people. They choose to do it. And, and for anybody that hears this, if you've left a review like that, I, I thank you, because... They're very helpful, and it's you know there, there've been you know wonderful reviews on there, and people love the book. So it's it's uh, you know it's it's good because it covers every aspect of my career. Well, up until 2013 was when the book was published. Um, although, as each print run or new print run happens, I I maybe add a few little highlights at the end in the epilogue of. Okay, since 2013, when it was published, the next print run might say, well, this happened or that happened or I did this or I did that. So there will be um, in the next print run, which is probably coming up next year, there'll be a few little additions at the end. And the More Blues for Gary album will be mentioned and, and why I did it and how I did it. And also the um, the forthcoming um, uh, 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 Hall of... Um, heavy metal history, uh, Lee Kerslake and I are, are being inducted in in January into that, and that will, I mean, obviously I have to put that in the book as well, because it's a nice achievement, it's a, a nice award to receive, and a nice acknowledgement of, uh, of, you know, the careers. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, should you ever there's, get to New York? one person that I don't think we covered that's, that's on the, or well, a couple of people actually, there's Ricky Warwick, who, who sang on... Um, Parisian walkways, which I thought he did a lovely job, and I've had some really nice comments on on his performance on that. And the other one is Jeff Watson with Joe Lynn Turner. Well, so you see, with Jeff Watson, Joe Lynn Turner, and myself um, on on the song "Power of the Blues," it's kind of almost like a, a, a tribute to Gary from Mother's Army. So, right. uh, and the the drummer on that track is Darren Mooney, who was was Gary's. Um, drama that you know that i'd already worked with as, as, as well so um yeah a little tribute from mother's army to to uh, gary there too 
Well, it's awesome stuff. And should you ever get to New York, uh, by all means, come sit in the studio and we'll take some calls from the audience. We'll do a full show. We almost did a full show here together already, but I'd love to have you in the studio. And uh, I'm sure the audience would love to talk to you and we'll do something more should you ever get to New York City. And if I ever get to Australia, I'll look you up and we'll do a show from your house. How's that sound? Certainly do. Yeah, certainly. You're welcome. Bob, great to talk to you. Best of luck with this record and, and with all your projects and hope to see you soon. Thank you very much, Eddie, and all the best to everyone. And uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we shall talk soon. Same to you. Talk to you soon. Thank you. All the best, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. My thanks to Bob Daisley. Always enjoyable talking to Bob, and wish him uh, best of luck with that Gary Moore tribute record. It is a real good record. Check it out. It is out now, and we'll keep an eye on Bob's future activities. And a little additional note, I there's a good chance that I'm going to be interviewing Lee Kerslake next week from the NAM show and the Hall of Heavy Metal History, which I'm going to be hosting, which will be coming up this Wednesday. Lee Kerslake is supposed to be there. Listen to my volume show, and you'll hopefully hear that interview. And if you don't get the volume show, maybe I'll bring it to you in future episodes of the podcast. So that should be really cool. Thanks to Katie Irizarry. She's the producer of the Eddie Trunk podcast. And she's leaving New York and moving to Philadelphia. So good luck, Katie. And thank you guys for listening wherever and however you do so. Hopefully I'll be back next Thursday for a new episode with a better sounding voice and a cool interview as always for you. Follow on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You guys have a great week. Catch you next Thursday for another all new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Podcast1.com and iTunes. Fight for the football postseason is underway, and the sports betting expert, R.J. Bell, is wired into the big game. I feel good about it, and thank you so much for all the support. It it, it really means a lot. Tune in to hear the best analysis and play-by-plays before R.J. heads to Atlanta for the final showdown. Jibber-jabber all you want, as long as you're one of the best guys out there. Whoop, deal with it. And then when you're not, bye-bye. Download R.J. Bell's Dream Preview every week on Podcast One Sportsnet or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.